It's your host, Akendi Adirale, and I have the, the great pleasure, the great honor and privilege of being here with, 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 a, with a good friend, Ernest, um, all-round master of intelligence, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, 3X IQ, you know, superstar, uh, Chicago Bulls MBA, um, PhD as well at, at, at Carnegie, just a, a, a all-round all round superstar. Um, and friend, but also a Ugandan who has had the opportunity to be on ground during these past couple of months. And today we're going to spend the time discussing um, what happened and thinking and brainstorming because I have this uh, wonderful intellect here um, about ways we can build societies that are not susceptible to dictate and influence. Um, so let's let's start with an introduction of yourself, Ernest. How about you tell tell the people who you are? Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, I like to think of myself first as a football lover. I'm a Liverpool fan. Uh, above everything else, I believe um, uh, there are two things in this world a man should never change, uh, his wife and his football club. Everything else is fair <laughs> game. Uh, and um, I'm also a lover of uh, all things Africa. So, <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. So, so um, Ernest, I, I think a great place to start would be I'd like to, you know, any of my listeners who don't know the situation in Uganda that don't understand, you know, exactly, you know, pay how long Museveni has been, been in power, um, can, can go and do their research. We're not trying to help on that, but I would love to focus on the events of the election period, um, the dynamic between Museveni and Bobby Wine, what happened. Um, how about we start at the very beginning with, you know, in the, in the lead up to this election, why in the world is Museveni running against for a sixth term? having led the country for 35 years? Uh, yeah, so uh, the the reason that was given by uh, the current president, uh, Yori Kaguta Museveni, for running is that he felt that he still needed five more years um, in power to enact a lot of his policies and his plans. Uh, he had, they had released the manifesto as part of the ruling government uh, party, which is, which is called the National Resistance Movement. And that outlined a series of policies that they felt that they needed more time to enact. Um, as expected, um, all things take time. And uh, one thing I wanted the audience to, to be aware of is that um, these policies were released after he had uh, already been 35 years in power. He came to power through a, uh, a rebellion um, in 1986 when he led a group of soldiers to uh, attack a couple military barracks uh, in the central part of Uganda in uh, early 1985, all the way through 86. Uh, when they came to power uh, on January uh, 6th, uh, January 15th, if I recall, uh, 1986, that's when they went through the capital and, and got the instruments of power and took over. And uh, it wasn't until over 10 years later that the first multi-party democratic election was held uh, that way it could transition from military to civilian rule. And uh, first elections were, uh, were officially in 1996. Um, 71 won them. Uh, he then proceeded to win the next four elections in, in, in uh, after, and the elections are held every five years. So that would be in 2001, 2006, uh, 2011, 
2016, and now uh, we are in 2021. And as of today, he was uh, he was declared a couple of days ago by the Electoral Commission that runs the elections in Uganda to have emerged the winner uh, of that um, uh, recent election. And um, uh, throughout these elections, he's been having different opposition figures that have contested for the presidency. The earliest uh, that contested for the presidency in 1996 was a Dr. Paul Kawanga Semogere. He was from the Democratic Party. And, and then uh, uh, it, there was another opposition figure called Chisa Besager of the Federal of the Forum for Demar Democratic Change, which is called the FDC. He has been one of his longtime opposition political figures, and they were actually together in the Bush War that brought Museveni into power. He was his uh, he was his personal doctor, mm -hmm. but uh, they had a change of differing opinions on how to govern, and they split. And they've been opposition figure, and they've been in opposition ever since. And Dr. Chiza Besige has been in opposition uh, to Yori Kabuta Museveni uh, for the past five elections. Now, the 2021 general election uh, was sort of a change of the guard when it comes to the opposition party and the opposition politics. Uh, Dr. Chiza Besige decided not to contest for the presidency and took more like a, a step back from uh, active politics. And uh, the way Uganda is arranged is that you have a lot of musicians that always speak about the plight of what's happening, uh, whether for profit or whether just to uh, showcase what's happening on the ground. Uh, it's through this same movement that um, a young man known as uh, uh, Chagulanyi Sentamu, AKA Bobby Wine, started making songs. He was actually a musician in, in the late 90s, all the way through 2000. And I even recall, um, singing some of his songs back in the day. And he has sort of refined his message to make it a little bit more of a global appeal because initially he came from a, a place called um, uh, uh, like a very slum, er uh, slum area. And uh, because of that, he, he always uh, represented uh, the lack of access and opportunity to the to, uh, the uh, very large segment of the population identified with. And there was that discontent that propelled him to the front of the opposition ticket because uh, he's 36 years old. And if you look at the time frame, Seveni has been in power for uh, pretty much all his life. So, <laughs> so he here's a very old uh, man who, you know, uh, he, he's seen it all uh, on one side. And then on the other side is, a, is another young man who pretty much, if, if you look at their uh, backgrounds, uh, they pretty much have the same outlook on life at that point in their in their own life. So Museveni at 36 was exactly like Bobby Wine, idealistic, wanted things to change and wanted things to change for the better. Um, but I think primarily when someone stays that long in power, they speak, a lot of people start to question whether uh, uh, whether their motives or even their direction is still the same. So Bobby Wine decided first to run for a member of parliament, which is like a, um, a representative seat in the uh, which is a representative seat of power um, in the country. And once he was able to, uh, to get the seat for uh, another politician who had stepped down in his constituency, he started moving around uh, the country and started speaking more to the plight of what was happening. And, and this is similar to that discontent that I talked about earlier, where a lot of people felt that uh, for one reason or another, the government wasn't providing the services that they thought that they needed, whether it was education, healthcare, 
uh, or even other basic social services. So when you add that discontent and you 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 match it with a figure that you know is a very young man who has taken himself through uh, school, uh, having gone through hardships and not being able to even pay for his own school fees, and then goes to university, uh, gets married to this beautiful lady, and they have like all these kids. So he so he he epitomized the struggle from. Um, from pretty much the everyday common man in Uganda. And that's why a lot of people found themselves attaching uh, themselves to his cause. And it was easy to see at the very beginning that even though people didn't, didn't uh, even though people knew that it was going to be very hard to unseat uh, Yorika Guta Museveni, there was this um, hope in the air that maybe this time things would be this different. Maybe this time, uh, the old man would see himself in the young one, and then he would let go and have uh, give him an opportunity to ascend to the throne, uh, for lack of a better word. Uh, unfortunately, that was not the case. In the lead up to the 2021 general election, uh, Bobby Wine's uh, rallies, uh, where he was trying to canvass for support across the country, were subject to uh, police brutality in the form of beatings. Um, sound grenades, even actual live grenades. Uh, a lot of his supporters were actually injured in the line of duty as far as like protecting him or even moving, moving with him. He was arrested multiple times. Um, and uh, there were police blockades pretty much directing him where he wants to go and where he needs to go under the, under the guidance that uh, because of COVID-19 restrictions, those crowds shouldn't gather to listen to him. And um, <clears throat> Uh, what ended up happening was that a lot of the people took that to mean that the government was against uh, Bobby Wine, and that actually even gave him more of a uh, of a political profile to to go beyond just the capital city. Um, and to get a better understanding of the country, um, Uganda was, as every other African country, drawn up by European missionaries and colonialists at the time, based on like the different types of raw materials that they needed. And in order to keep harmony within the region uh, that had different tribes, they assigned different tasks and responsibilities for people uh, based on their tribe. And now this amplified the tensions whereby people in the central were considered um, to be more like the civil servants and people from other regions like in the north were considered to be like the security personnel. So over time, there was always this tribal sentiment from central to east, to west, to north, and South that was always like at the underbelly and underlying uh, within all the tension, whereby if people are looking at opportunities, if someone is from a different region, it's easy for someone from the opposite region to say that, well, the only reason you have that opportunity is because you have you come from a specific region, and I don't. The person who gave it to you is from your particular region. So it, that's also uh, that is also relevant in this context and conversation because Museveni comes from the Western part of the country. And uh, Bobby Wine comes from the central part of the country. And uh, historically, both those regions have had a lot of representation when it comes to prosperity and success. But there's always been accusations uh, uh, between both of them that one uh, favors uh, only people from their specific region. More so to the point that um, the national resistance movement, when it won, the, when it has been winning the previous elections, it has always had the biggest strong the stronghold in the western part of the country, and the National mm -hmm. Unity Platform, which is the political party that Bobby Wine set up a few months to the election, uh, ended up taking all the seats in the central region where he's from. So there's always that dynamic underneath where it's like, uh, is it a true representation of the people's power? 
to say. Uh, and then um, it's always better to understand the context and the need to say to know that uh, unfortunately there's not there has not been a lot of migration between people in the regions and people end up voting um, what they feel uh, represent or represents them the, the most, even though it might not directly affect them per se. And there's, um, uh, there is this uh, internal sentiment that, you know, moving forward, we will try to uh, heal the divide, uh, change, you know, the narrative between people in different regions, but that is also part of uh, the context in this conversation. That's, that, that is one, I appreciate you for giving such a thorough process. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is, I mean, this is hopefully, listeners, I hope you're enjoying this because this is what we founded the podcast for to get really thorough insights on, on what's actually going on. And I think that provides a context to explain one, you know, what has happened so far, Mr. Vanny, the opposition to them and how that has morphed over time. Um, how this current election cycle has looked and the, the geographical or I don't want to say tribalistic influences yeah. that's, uh, that's around this whole scenario. I guess a, a good place to go now, I think, would be to discuss most of any specifically. Um, one thing yeah. that I've always been curious about is the mind of somebody who chooses to be in office for 35 years. Of course, yeah. I'd love to believe that the major appeals, <laughs> money, power, influence, of course, you want to hold on to it. But for somebody specifically like him, who usurp Idi Amin, um, then proceeded to usurp the guy who came after him, um, and then became, uh, you know, president is the wrong word, ruler, and then eventually president. Um, what what do you think the drivers are for an individual like that to stay so long in office? Is it a is it just the you know power, money, etc., or is it some idea that you know, hey, here's what I thought I would accomplish in my time and you know, over, you know, five years pass, unable to do it, another five years, unable to do it yeah. uh, um, because of maybe situation or just personal lack of competency that he refuses to accept. Do you think, you know, what do you think the primary drivers are for an individual who chooses to, let's, let's look into the mind of a dictator for a second. And, and, and yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's funny you ask that question and maybe even to provide more context. Oh, uh, another um, tidbit uh, trivia for you. I, uh, I also, uh, I fell in love with history when I left uh, my country the first time because I really didn't know much about it. So I always went, I, I always use that opportunity to go back and like learn about what has happened in the past. Hmm. Um, and you always see parallels in the future. And that brings me to the point of Idi Amin. Idi Amin was a dictator, uh, definition of an actual dictator in, in Uganda, it was a Uganda ruler from 1971 to 76. Uh, he, was a, he was eventually toppled into, uh, from power and he died in exile in Saudi Arabia, I think in the late 2000s. Um, and he was from the Northern part of the country. He wasn't as well educated as people from the central uh, because remember these were during the colonial times and um, what the British did was to make sure that people from the central region were the most educated. So uh, if you look at the most Ugandans that, that were the first to attain a, a foreign seas education, a lot of them, um, 90, 90 to 95% of them came from the central region and that was by actual design. And people from the northern region were only kept in the military and the army. Um, so uh, Idi Amin was from the army and he ascended to power through a coup. I was on for a couple of years and he committed some of the worst atrocities to this day. They're still finding a couple of mass graves here and there. And there's a couple of films that have been done about him. One is I think The Last King of Scotland that Forrest Whitaker got the best actor uh, Oscar for. Yeah. And, 
Yeah, and uh, it's also one of those movies that um, I, I know some Ugandans, especially from a particular era. I know for, for a fact, like my parents don't even, can, don't even want to talk about, they never say his name because uh, they still remember the trauma from like the 70, from 71, 76. And that, and that is relevant in the conversation because that, that was a time when Museveni was still a young man and he too was probably going through that same trauma. And one of the, one of the, um, one of the uh, facets that the current government that is controlled by Museveni uses is that they brought peace into the region because they always reference the 70s and 80s that were turbulent that had all these guerrilla warfare. So that in essence is what uh, is what gives them the right to stay in power, according to their opinion. Uh, now, if you look at the mind of a dictator, um, I compare it, uh, funny enough, to the mind of an immigrant. Yeah, and and bear with me here. Yes, I know, I know. It's it's it it sounds abstract, but there uh, but there they are parallels. When someone leaves their country the first time and goes to a foreign country, the impetus is on them to succeed. Then they're like, I can't go back, you know, without something to show that I have made this. So when you first come to the U.S., you're thinking, okay, I need to first get my, um, what do I need to work? What do I need to get a job? What do I, you know, how much money do I need to send back home? You know, and one thing you fail to notice is that as you're doing all these things, time is passing. And then two years later, someone tells you, hey, it's been two years since you've been here. And then you evaluate and say, well, I still need one more year to do this. There's that drive whereby you feel like you haven't yet done enough and you keep asking yourself uh, or even like telling yourself that you need more time. And I compare that to someone who's like in a position of power. They want to do uh, things that they feel is relevant to them, not necessarily to themselves, but maybe at the time they're thinking for the country. And when time passes, they realize that, oh, I still need to do this and this and this. And eventually one year becomes 10 years, becomes 25, becomes 35. And then it reaches a point whereby you don't see anyone else that can do that except you. It's like, uh, if, if one thing uh, I've always liked to do when I'm in the US is like, I always find immigrants who've been there like five, 10, 15, 20 years. And I always ask them, uh, do you need more time before you go back home? And they always say yes. And then I ask them, what do you need the time for? And it's always something different. So in, if I parallel that with a person in a position of power as a dictator, there's always something that they want to do, that they feel that they didn't get a chance to do, and they feel that they need more time. And the justification for that is the fact that they've already been in that position of power. And it comes down to, oh, the other person is too young to rule. They don't have experience. You know, then it becomes a protectionist measure. Uh, in other instances, they do it as, um, you know, power. They say power corrupts. Or you know the the uh, the safety of power is uh, is actually what makes it a poison chalice. The more you drink, the more it poisons you. But then your body gets used to the poison, and then you can't do without it. So uh, you become addicted in a way that you can't see yourself doing anything else apart from what you've been doing for the past five, ten, fifteen years. And it is hard to get out of that mindset. And then once you surround yourself with people who are also benefiting from that particular status quo, then you get reinforcement into that idea. It's never just one person saying that they're going to stay in power forever. It's usually more, you know, um, a group of people instruct, you know, giving cues that, hey, you're doing a good job, stay there, stay there. 
and we always joke of in uh, in Uganda we have uh, what we call boarding schools, which are uh, other remnants of colonialism, where they take you to the school away from your parents, and you spend like I don't know how many years there to give you structure and form. And one thing we always always noticed that all these were uh, religious instruction schools, but we also noticed that the headmasters or the principals in charge were never elected, and they could stay indefinitely. So the first time we encounter a dictatorship or a form of extended rule is in the first form of structure that is supposed to give us structure, which is going to be in our education. So wow. then we attach, uh, we attach that level of consistency to what we consider our leadership to a point whereby we, we might be discontent, but then we expect it and then we don't do anything about it. And then that's how someone stays in power. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so many the Nobel Peace Prize right now. <laughs> oh my goodness. That is that is fantastic. I, and one of the things that has always bugged me for a long time is how lazy broadly we are about people staying in power. And you know, we don't yeah. really think about yeah, oh, they're just going to heal power for us. And we don't really synopsize what exactly that means um and I'm, I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity i think i'm going to name this episode the mind of the dictator but um <laughs> it, it certainly has been remarkable to hear that kind of breakdown of one the outside influences from you know he was he grew up in the when Idi Amin was was present the traumas of those those events cannot be understated um but also you know the self-reinforcing effects of you know being in power you know deciding that hey you want to you want to do X, Y, and Z, never feeling like you have enough time and extending your stay um, indefinitely because you know the, the time never comes. And then the people around yeah. you also supporting your your, your evil. And I, and I love the analogy of comparing it to an immigrant, um, especially to Western countries, because you know yeah. the life of comfort, the relative security that you have in, will will always drum up yes. many reasons for you to. Yeah, and uh, funny, yeah. Uh, funny enough, you say that. I remember the first time we met. I told you, uh, coming full <laughs> circle, you had done an episode on, and uh, you know, when when uh, when someone is faced with that choice of the dilemma, do they go back or do they stay? And mm -hmm. you look at the relative comforts of where you've been, and the see the uh, as immigrants, the price we pay for leaving home. Uh, I don't, and I think I've told you this before. The price we pay for leaving home is that you can never fully go back home. Even when you're physically there, your experiences have given you a different perspective. So you're always in a point of comparison. And the thing about comparison is that it is going to be the thief of joy. You will never be content. And that is the price you pay. Like, yes, you will one day go back home to where you were born, but you will always have something to compare it to. And uh, it's, it's also similar to how um, someone mentioned I was uh, I, I I love Black Twitter because it has like a lot of conversations that give me like an opportunity to learn, uh, and you know I'm always in that mode of like trying to learn as much as I can. It's something that I picked up from my grandmother. She was always like, if you enter the room, make sure you know everyone who is there, who they are, what they do, what's their relation to you. That way you can use that information to better carry yourself going forward. And the thing about Black Twitter is like it gives you a nuance to uh, understand these conversations in different contexts. And that's how like sometimes like when I'm when I'm reading something, I'm always like, OK, what, what's Twitter saying? Uh, what's the perspective here? What's the link? OK, OK, what is this? What's that? And I've always, and, and, and uh, coming to the US, I realized that I had a lot of um, biases uh, like uh, like 
Okay. Yeah, like like this this programmed uh, learn uh, you know instances of certain things that I had to like deprogram actively to be like, all right, Ernest, you can't think this way because even though you came up in a society that thought only this, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just that that's all they thought, but you have now an opportunity to change that perspective. So now when I come back home, I have what I call measured conversations. There are certain things I can't talk to my peers about in Uganda because I know. Uh, I hate to quote Drake because I'm not a Drake fan. I <laughs> say it's something about we might be staying in the same buildings, but we we're different. We're seeing different level. We're seeing different things because we're at different levels. You know, it's it's that sort of mindset whereby um, I'm talking to my friends in Uganda, and the perspective of how things are different outside is something that is lost on them but I can't blame them because they too are looking at me and they're like well you haven't been here long enough to understand this perspective differently uh -huh. so then we have measured conversations about measured topics and it, it's hard to not necessarily find a middle ground but it's hard to find that balance because they won't understand my perspective and I'm not entirely in tune with theirs but you know you drive the conversation you learn and you're like okay why is this this way why is it that way and that's, you know, that's, in, that's, that's like a first step for landing for me. And, it, and especially now that I like, I've started to like, look more into the history of why things are and how they're supposed to be. Um, and then you see parallels to today and you're like, well, Idi Amin did that. Okay, I'm seeing it today. Uh, Milton Obote, who was also, there were, Milton Obote was another, uh, was another president of Uganda. Uh, he was a uh, he was, the first prime minister of Uganda when Uganda gained independence in 1962. The first president was an actual cultural king of the central region of the Buganda kingdom known as Mutesa I. And in 1966, which is four years after uh, Uganda gains independence, there's what they call the Kabaka crisis where Milton Obote uh, went and deposed the sitting president of the country and assumed uh, power and control. And then that's what kind of like started the series of like rebellions and going down the road uh, to when till Museveni comes in power in 86 and sort of like uh, standardizes and says no more coups, no more guerrilla warfare uh, to uh, what we have to today. Yeah, thanks for, yeah. thanks for the mandate is peace, effectively. <laughs> wow, I, I, think, I think perhaps a good place in our state this conversation would be to the second half which yeah. is objectively discussing, you know, what are the elements that can be put in place to, to because let's start answer first. What are the elements that can be put in place? What's it, what yeah. things need to exist for society to function and progress effectively um, while mitigating the possibility or the effects of, of the current dictator? Um, and then we, can, then we can discuss, you know, how do we, do we actively put those, those steps in place? Uh, thoughts? And yeah, so uh, one, I've, uh, it's funny you ask that question because I think someone asked me that question maybe like five, six years ago the first time. And I struggled with it because I first wrote down a list of things and I think I had like 30 things. And uh, this was before I, I, I started to understand context and conversations and like what underlies something. Um, and it's it's like what's double speak and anything like that. So uh, the... I think I've settled now to something that I that I feel uh, could be like a starting point, and that's a civic in engagement and civic education. Uh, a lot of uh, 
what is happening today, believe it or not, is going to be is history. It's more like it has happened before. And the fact that people have forgotten about it is what gives rise to it to happen again. Um, like um, to, to maybe to give uh, American audiences um, more like something to juxtapose and see where, where, where my example is. Uh, when you think about police brutality, um, the, the killing of unarmed uh, people of color, specifically black men in, in American cities is, is not new. It's always been happening. The only difference is that back then it was happening, maybe less people were recording it. There was less of that visible presence of someone to pull out a cell phone video and say, okay, I'm going to record what's happening and then post it to the rest of the world to see. Now you have a scenario where people are attentive and it's the same things that are still happening, but now they're recording it. They're like, oh, then you see all these videos of, you know, um, a stop, it, it escalates, uh, there's wrong judgment and then someone loses their life. Then you can see it in progression. And it's sort of like the video evidence of something that has already been happening. And if you go back in history, you'll always see it's, it's, you know, it's, it's the same pattern. This has always been happening. The only difference is that we never documented it as much. And that's where history comes in. With civic engagement and civic education, people get to understand, number one, why is the country named Uganda? Like, well, like I remember going around asking people, why do you think we're, we're called Uganda? Why is the capital called Kampala? You know, and I think it was uh, a guy from I think it was Dubai from Dubai from the Middle East, like the UAE, who actually told me uh, that oh, it's called Kampala because it has these seven hills, and on these hills there was this deer, and these deer are called Impala. And I was like, oh, so Kampala means the city of the Impala. Like, yes, I didn't know that. I had no idea, and someone else had to tell me that. And it's, it's, it's mostly, you know, from that perspective, like if you know what has happened in the past, then you are more, um, you're more prepared to avoid repeating it in the future. And that comes down to the civic education. When people start to know, you know, the, our country was formed this way, this has been the transition of power. This is what happened during that. This is, you know, then we're seeing parallels to like what is happening today. Then we start to get more involved and we're like, okay, now we know what happens if this, you know, if we start to see these patterns. So now we can recognize them and then we can start to avoid them. Uh, and then slowly by slowly, once people get, get more engaged, you know, it's similar to same with the US. I remember when uh, Barack Obama got the 2008 president, uh, presidency, when he won the 2008 presidency, and then I think they had 2010 was the House and the Senate uh, uh, races. And I, I think the Democrats ended up losing both the House and the Senate or something like that. And a lot of people noticed that there was a sharp drop off between the people who had voted, uh, among the people who had voted in the 2008 presidential election and the people who had voted in the Senate and House races. So people literally fell off as far as engagement with that political process because they were like, okay, we've elected the president, we've done our part, let's just sit back. It's similar to uh, um, in Uganda as well, where we do not have that level of engagement into, in our politics, except when something goes bad. And an engagement in politics doesn't mean that, oh, I have to, you know, I, I have to be at every issue. It's more like knowing what's happening around you. Who's your uh, local leader? Who's your, I always tell people, and, and this is like a funny game I would play with my Ugandan friends every time like they would uh, they would text me uh, when I was still in the U.S. about Trump. They'd be like, "Oh, you guys have Trump? What? What? What?" 
and then I'll text them back, who's your LC1 chairman? Now the LC1 is the local council leader at the village level in Kampala, Uganda. It literally means who is the guy next to you that is supposed to figure out where the water in your house is supposed to go. The idea was that I wanted you to be concerned with the person at the very bottom because that can have the most impact and forget about Trump because he's, you know, he's gonna do what he's gonna do. But if this guy doesn't give you water uh, or make sure that there's enough water piping into your house, then you're gonna have a problem. And I wanted to get people to understand that it wasn't like an insult, it was more like, hey, we have these civic leaders. We don't know what, what level they are. We don't know how they are interacting with us or how they impact us because we, don't, we lack that level of civic education. And because we lack the civic education, we lack the civic in engagement with that process. And then when something happens, it's like, oh, we didn't know this could ever happen. Uh, I'm pretty sure I can find a historical accurate record of every incident that has happened in Uganda, like this year in the, for the past 30 years. There's like, like for like, it's not new. And that's why it's always like very funny. Like when I see these things in the news, in the news, and they're like, "Oh, this could never happen here." I'm like, "Ah, technically in '71 it did. Technically in '76 it did. Technically in '82 it did, and also in '85." And it's like, "Oh, yes, it's the same." It's that we forget and we don't know, so we make the we keep on making the same mistake. Both the people who lead us and both the people who are being led. So, that's my answer to put it. <laughs> Fantastic, and and. And you know the the fundamental idea that's one we have to be better civically engaged both in America both 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 in in in, yep. in, in African countries which we're talking about now um, and, and that involves it seems to involve two things the first thing you mentioned was hey just a general better sense of what's going around you especially at the most localized level that affects you, you know, do you know your local government council yep. or local government chairman who are who makes the decisions that directly affect your life. Um, yeah. And this is a, this might even be a small plug for like any African entrepreneur out there. If you can find a way to make an application that lets people know who they're by location, who affects them from a local standpoint and what those levels are, mm -hmm. that could be the first step in like that level of civic engagement. Cause then you can pull out, a, you can pull out your phone, be like, I stay here. Who's my first representative? Like, where are they? What's their policy? Yeah. And then there people can start to get more involved in the process and not have to act surprised every time something happens. And us, the historians in the background, we're like, uh, yeah, so this is like the 10th time it's happening this time. <laughs> it, it seems that in addition to that, there's also the fundamental problem of, of a consciousness about history. Um, yep. You know, of course, we can make arguments about how well it's recorded, but you know, it's recorded enough for us to see that many patterns have repeated themselves cyclically very many oh. times in our history. Oh, and uh, oh, do I? You, you know me in quotes. You know me in quotes. I have a quote for just that. You've probably heard of this one before. Um, the first time I heard it was from a Somalian uh, poet rapper uh, based out of Canada now. His name is Kanan. His first album was uh, The Dusty Foot Philosopher. I think it came out in 2005, six. Um, and it was until the lion learns to speak, the tales of hunting will, you know, will glorify the hunter. Like if someone tells you that they've killed the lion, right? They yeah. can say that they killed it, they were brave, the lion was strong, but then they overpowered it. But you can never get the other side of the story. Yeah, the lion said. So the same thing with history, like the people who write it are always going to be the victors. So even when we look at it, we're always asking ourselves, are they, are the people that are in charge of it, are they giving it 
um, a fair share? Are they like being equitable with documenting it? And even in in like to give it another example in preparation for like this talk, I think I sent you like one of the sources, and uh -huh. I was very, very careful to make sure it was not like a Ugandan source to be outside of this bubble that it was sort of like showing you the facts of the case because I wanted to make sure that when it came to documenting it, uh, there was not going to be any suggestion of bias or like favoritism to move to be more like these are the facts. Someone else has done this research on their own time and they've gotten the facts and you, when you look at it it's then a non-biased piece of information and then you can take from those facts as well and make your own judgment fantastic, fantastic. Uh, i think so you know starting with you know one civil engagement to a better understanding of our history and a better engagement with it um yep. one of the things that seems like it would enable both of those to happen and perhaps much more would be an establishment of institutions um, however, it often seems like from a dynamic, we, from a power dynamic perspective, we expect, you know, the, the government, whoever is president, should start setting up those institutions. However, they don't really have much of an incentive yeah. to do so because, you know, institutions curtail their abilities. Could you speak to perhaps how private citizens can engage in institution building so that we build better societies that's that emphasize all the things you mentioned above about civil engagement and following up history yeah uh one, yeah one of the examples i gave which was the plug was you know for an african entrepreneur to make that application right mm -hmm. and if someone in the political power or the political office sees this that let's say like it's the mayor of a city then they can pay this african entrepreneur a set amount of money to be like hey make an application for our city for our residents. Now that is like a public private partnership whereby you are, the city is paying a private citizen to make for them to provide a service that's going to uh, benefit all their citizens, right? And that is going to be like the first step whereby the, uh, the both sides of uh, both the public and private recognize that this is going, this has to be a partnership because you can't just have a private sector uh, involvement in the political process because that's what ends up happening is uh, similar to I think in the US they call it lobbying whereby you have these private entities and their interests and they're paying uh, all these senators to write all these laws and if you're lucky maybe that law affects you positively or maybe it's negative like depending on what but you as an individual don't have that power to 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 advocate for yourself you have to make sure that your need is part of the collective and in most cases, the collective is determined by who has the most money. So then if, if that need doesn't affect, the, you know, doesn't um, affect you uh, positively, then it's going to affect you negatively. So with this, with this sort of like private public partnerships, they can be then like a give and take. Like uh, I'm not, a, uh, I'm, one thing, I think when I introduced myself in the beginning, I told you like I'm a love of all things African. And people can tell you like if Ernest is putting on a shirt, a trouser, it's some, chances are it's made by some African somewhere that he has phoned on like the internet. He has like paid whatever it takes to ship it. He's like advertising it because like I'm a big proponent of like uh, putting money into businesses like that because then mm -hmm. you get to elevate them. I'm not a big fan of like when people are like, oh, we're going to donate like 300 shirts to um, a place in Uganda. I'm like, well, if you donate 300 shirts, you're killing the textile industry of the person who's actually making a shirt in Uganda. Mm. What you need to do is go to Uganda, buy the shirts from, from Uganda, and then give them to like people 
uh, in those countries. That way, you're not you're not downsizing what um, their value proposition or their value add is in that sort of economic space. Every time I introduce a good into an economy, it means that there's someone that is going to be taken out, right? So you have you've given me 300 shirts, I've taken them to Uganda, right? There's already someone there that sells those shirts, but he's now competing with me who's gotten them for free and I'm still going to give them out. That means that no one is gonna buy the shirts of the person who's made them in Uganda. Get the money, go to Uganda and buy the shirts directly. That way you're actually putting money into that economy. So when I find African entrepreneurs like on the internet or wherever, and they're like, oh, we, we make these Chuck Taylors, but then we put like Kente cloth in them and we ship them from Ghana. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm going to get like Kente cloth inspired Chuck Taylors, Converse sneakers from Ghana. I'm going to put my money there. Then it's, 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 it's like a more direct infusion of capitalism, especially in the places that need that sort of economy. So it's the same thing with like a public-private partnership. When, when most cities are looking for services to be provided, they have a request for proposal bid, then people put their bids in. But in most cases, either some government official is paid some money and then someone else gets the contract that is not entirely from that local area. And then you have money leaving the city going elsewhere that is not going to be used to repurpose you know, or like reinvest within the city. It's if the city could, 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 could make a directive and say, hey, we want people that are based locally to provide bids for us, and then we're gonna pick from one of these. That means that whatever that amount of money is, because it is going to be taxpayers' money, stays within that sort of like ecosystem and it never leaves. And that's how you can start to build like certain economy. So, it, so I, it's, it's even like when I think we're talking about this podcast, like everywhere I go, I'm like, hey, have you guys listened to Pod Save Africa? Yeah, because I know the person, so I know what they're doing. So it's like, I am actively, I'm like a walking billboard of like all these different like businesses and services started by all these different Africans. And I'm always like promoting them because they need that level of visibility. I, it's, it's, it's also similar to um, how I got uh, involved like in the VC space when I started to realize that, oh, there's not that many people of black descent that are in the VC space. And it's very hard to get funded if um, you are a black founder because most of the VCs are not black. So chances are, if they don't see themselves in you, they might not necessarily give you the money. So you need to have black VCs. That way they can actually find other black founders to be like, hey, here's the money, here you go. Uh, make it work or else we're both out of a job, right? Yeah. But they don't even get that chance at that failure. So um, it's the same when you look at the, in, in the African context, uh, the cities need to reinvest within their population, whether it's, you know, how they use that money to make sure that it stays within that same econo uh, economic sector. The moment it leaves, uh, that's why you have scenarios. I remember I was reading, I, I was watching this documentary of this town in Switzerland uh, that um, uh, they, it's, 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 it's where a bank that is mining from Africa stores like most of its money and the taxes from that account are what are used to develop the, the, the town itself. But then they ended up having a surplus. And in my head, I'm thinking, why don't you just keep it in the African bank and then have the surplus there? Yeah. So, but those, those are conversations I know we, we <laughs> we'll probably stay here for like a long time and have. Yeah. yeah. Uh, putting trust, and not just trust, but also capital trust 
in the local entities. That way they get rejuvenated and they also have a, um, you know, um, an opportunity to give back to the city as well. Fantastic, fantastic. So even, especially for folks in diaspora, that's one actionable step that they can take away with Yeah. Other yeah, I'm on that, and I'm always telling folks in the diaspora, you have access to opportunities that people back home, you know, from your countries might not. So if you have an opportunity to connect people back home to these, uh, uh, to these uh, different chances out in in the U.S., the U.K., or whatever, then take that as a possibility. There's a couple WhatsApp groups I'm always on, and people have noticed that okay, if I see like some scholarship opportunity that says okay, people of African descent, like, you know, Ernest is forwarding it to like 30 groups, like, just, just like, hey, tell people, tell like, they need to get on this, because um, it's, 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 it's always that expression of like, uh, what is it, it's more like, uh, I forget that quote, but something to do with like, opportunities, not everywhere, but, you know, intel intelligence is everywhere, but opportunity is not. <laughs> Like, I think I think we've 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 had a fairly thorough conversation, starting off with discussing yeah. the events in Uganda and in Uganda, doing a deep dive into the mind of a dictator and what the levels are for them personally. And we're now you know finally discussing, you know, here what are the active steps we can take. And, and listeners, I hope that after listening, you're, you're taking away one and an importance of increased civil civic and historical engagements with whatever countries you are from, and even countries you're not from, just understanding the why. Yeah. Right, why are things as they as they are? And then two, um, supporting supporting you know African economies with your money, not just you know taking your donations and disrupting the local textile industry like <laughs> it's carefully uh, exemplified, but also supporting businesses and 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 uh, value producers on the continent because you know the, the goods are, are 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 valuable and that's what they need less so donations. Um, and then, and then finally, I think there was a note you made there on, you know, even collectivization of our influence. Um, you mentioned yeah. the public, public private partnerships, leveraging, you know, as many people as possible to get things done. Um, maybe that's an effective way for us to think about change moving forward. And, and those three things can be part of the effective stalwart against um, dictator, dictatorships and, and, and things of that nature. Um, Ernest, I'm, I'm remarkably grateful. We're going to stay on this call and chat for a little bit afterwards, but yeah, um, yeah. definitely going to bring you back on the podcast to discuss a bunch of other topics. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm super grateful. Do you want to sign off for the listeners? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess I just want to say at the end of the day, um, uh, people who don't know their history are always going to be bound to repeat it. Um, mm -hmm. I'm a Liverpool fan. I'll never walk alone. Uh, die hard. Uh, so that's not changing. And like I said in the beginning, uh, there are two things a man can't change because he can't live without uh, his wife and his football club. Spot on, spot on. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Ernest. And listeners, yeah. thank you again for listening and have a fantastic rest of your day. Yeah, yeah. Thank you.